Well, welcome uh, to the second night of, of our four-week series um, called Strong, looking at the life of Samson um, that takes place in the book of Judges. In uh, 1984, um, which was a while ago, in 1984, uh, leading up to the NBA draft, that's professional basketball, um, it was a big draft for a certain franchise called the Portland Trailblazers. They're um, located on the West Coast, and through a trade, they had the second overall pick in the draft that year. The second overall pick, and they knew who the first pick was going to be. Everyone knew it was going to be a guy named Hakeem Olajuwon, who went on to have a Hall of Fame career. And with the second pick, there was some debate over who they should go with. And ultimately, Portland decided to draft a guy whose name is Sam Bowie. Sam Bowie. Um, he's not the guy in the middle, in case you were wondering. Um, if you, he's, the, he's the guy on the left. Hakeem Olajuwon is the guy on the right. Sam Bowie had all the potential in the world. If you can notice by the picture, he was tall. He was over seven feet tall. He was fast. He could handle the ball. He could shoot. He could pass. He had all the potential in the world. But he had struggled throughout his college days at Kentucky with injuries and some other, some other nagging things that caused him to miss lots of games. And unfortunately for, for Sam Bowie, he never developed into the player that he once was thought he could be. Um, he had a fine career, but it was by no means a superstar career, and it was mostly, as people look back, experts say it was a career that was potential that was never fulfilled. It was kind of wasted potential. And why his potential that wasn't fulfilled stands out so much um, is not so much due to his career or how great or how lack of greatness there was in it, but was the guy who came after him, who actually was the college player of the year that year, was the third overall pick. You might have heard of him if you live in Chicago. Um, I think we have a picture of him. Uh, it's this guy named Michael Jordan, the greatest athlete in American history was the guy who followed. I think Portland wishes they could have a do-over 40 years ago, right? Like, oh man, we messed that one up. But his Sam Bowie's story was potential that wasn't lived up to. Samson's story is one of wasted potential. It's one of wasted potential. If you were with us last week, if not Judges 13, a quarter of Samson's story in the book of Judges is about his life coming into existence. And it's the promise that God gives to his parents. And it's the miraculous beginning of everything that, that could be. And he has this divine start set aside before he was born to be a judge. If there was anyone with all the potential in the world for greatness, it was Samson. Yet Samson... Being the last of the judges accomplishes less than every judge who has come before. His is a life of wasted potential. And as we begin to look through into the life of Samson tonight, as we're going to journey through Judges chapter 14, we're going to notice a trend quickly tonight in that Samson's life starts at the top and unfortunately from there it quickly slides down quickly slides down. In fact, down is the key word in Judges 14. It's repeated multiple times. And Samson's drift downwards and away from God is a warning to us in the natural drift and tendency of our hearts as well. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. So what do we drift 
towards. He says this, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and to delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. See, he points out, which Samson's life points out tonight, that our natural tendency is not towards God. It's away from God. And as we look tonight at Judges 14, we're going to see that when it comes to faith, if we're not fighting to go forward, we're slipping backwards. When it comes to faith, if we're not fighting to go forward, we're slipping backwards. So Judges 14, verses 1, says this, Samson went down. I told you it's the key word. I wasn't lying, all right? Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. See, down here is for the first time in verse 1. It's going to be repeated five more times throughout just chapter 14 as we see Samson's life begin to spiral down and out of control. And we see him, it says he goes down to Timnah. Samson was born and lived in the, the tribe of Dan, lived in the town of Zorah, um, which doesn't mean a lot to you, but that's okay. But it was right on the neighboring town, the border of Philistines, where the Philistines ruled over them. So it was just a six-mile trek downhill, literally it was downhill, to the town of Zor. They were a bordering country. And so he finds himself walking down and immediately he sees a woman that he says he wants to have for his wife. And, and there's this conflict that comes, but verse 4 gives us some background context that not only helps us understand tonight's chapter, but really the whole life of Samson in this chapter 14, verse 4, this kind of key verse that says this, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, for God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. See, the key thing to remember in all of Samson's life is God is up to something bigger than Samson ever realized. We see in this whole story, uh, this, this two tracks going of divine sovereignty, of God controlling and using everything, and yet human responsibility, where God doesn't condone sinful actions and sinful behaviors. But we're going to notice how even Samson's sin cannot stop the purposes of God. And as we look at Samson's life, we think of Samson being strong, and we think of his physical strength, but we see that God is actually the one with true strength because he's orchestrating all of these events for a greater purpose. Well, we see um, in these first four verses, we're going to look tonight at three signs of slipping spirituality. Three signs of slipping spirituality as life goes downhill. What are those signs that we can look for that are warning signs to us along the way? The first, which is in your outline that you received, the first is this, the first sign of slipping spirituality is that you please yourself instead of honor God. You please yourself 
instead of honoring God. Notice how in the first three verses, each verse refers to what Samson saw. In verse 1, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. In verse 2, he reports it, I saw one of them. Verse 3, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Everything Samson does is focused on what he wants, what looks good to him, and no consideration is at all given to what God would have him do with his life. Well, last week we mentioned as we're going to study through Samson, we see how Samson's life actually is a reflection of where Israel finds themselves in their own walk with God. And just like Samson, Israel, um, we talked about last week, was born miraculously and was to be set aside for God. Tonight we see that just like Samson, Israel was chasing after foreign women. Just like Samson, Israel chased after foreign women. And this is utterly shocking that we would see Samson go to the Philistines and ask for a Philistine woman to be his wife. Now, the Bible is not against interracial marriage. And so what's going on here is not that she's a Philistine and you're an Israelite and there's interracial marriage. That's not at all what's going on. But it's an interfaith marriage. The Philistines were wicked. They did not honor or revere God. And Samson was called to be set apart to be one who represented God. And just as Samson finds himself throughout his entire life chasing after foreign women, Israel finds themselves doing this again and again. In the Judges, um, book of Judges twice, it says this. In Judges 2, it says, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Judges 8.33 says that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. See, when Israel turned away from the, the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the Old Testament, it often referred to it as spiritual adultery. A spiritual adultery that they were married to God. They were in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. And they went, ah, but we want what's over here. We want something other than the God that we have a covenant relationship with. Some translations use this phrase um, that, that Israel played the harlot or they prostituted themselves with other gods. That they had a relationship with, with the God that mattered, but they chased after the foreign gods. Just as Samson chased after foreign women, Israel finds themselves chasing after foreign gods. Not only that, but just like Samson, Israel finds themselves doing what was right in their own eyes. Just like Samson, Israel finds themselves doing what was right in their own eyes. We just read it there in chapter 14, verse 3. Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. The last verse of the book of Judges, concluding everything that happened, says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As we see this picture of Samson right away, we see that Samson's life is clearly focused on one person, himself. It's not focused on anyone else. It's not focused on God. Samson's life is focused on one person, himself. He may be the first narcissist in the Bible. It's all about Samson. In 2013, 
a Time Magazine article came out, and it was the cover story on it about the me, me, me generation. And it was really popular about five years ago, as lots of articles were to do nothing, it seemed like at first, but to bash millennials. Now, I'm a millennial, so before you bash millennials, just be careful, because you're talking to a millennial. But the headline of the story was why millennials are so, so lazy, so narcissistic, so selfish, so entitled. And he had a long article talking about it. And then near the end, he flipped it kind of on its head and said, you know what? Why are they like this? It's because they're human. And he said, if we had, he's a baby boomer. He said, if my generation had the technology that they had, our self-centered, narcissistic ways would look just like how they do. And he's saying, people aren't more selfish. They just show it different now than we did 20, 30 years ago when we were in our 20s. And they're different than we showed it 50, 60 years ago when the next generation before was in their teens and 20s. See, being selfish and being narcissistic is not some new problem that it's for the young people. It's a human problem that's for all of us. We each struggle in our lives towards selfishness, towards pleasing ourselves rather than towards honoring God. See, even if you're a Christian and you've place your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit, there's still a constant battle inside of us between these two options, to please ourselves or honor God. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, and they are in constant conflict with each other. The Christian life is one of constant conflict between the spirit of God in our lives and our own fleshly self desiring that we be exalted and God's spirit saying Christ should be exalted in our lives. But so often, like Samson, we live lives focused on ourselves rather than focused on honoring God. Where in your life do you find yourself focusing on your needs not what God would have for you? Is it in how you spend your time? How you spend your money? Your desires and what you want from life? Maybe even the attitudes that you bring to church. If you think about it, most church splits and disagreements are not due to deep theological differences. They're due to selfishness. And I want it this way. See, the irony in this is that when we look after pleasing ourselves, we're doing it because that's what we think will bring us the most joy. Whereas if we actually honor God, that's the life that in fact does bring the most joy. See, when it comes to faith, if you're not fighting forward, you're slipping backwards. So, verse 5. Samson went down. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came running toward him. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes." Now, this is an amazing feat of strength. And unfortunately, what we often do, if you're familiar at all with the story of Samson's life, is you compare what's to come in chapters 15 and 16 versus this, and you're like, oh, well, this isn't a big deal. 
I was reading one commentator, and he goes, there's one person who thinks this isn't a big deal, and that's the person who has never faced a lion in the wild with no bars between them. All right, if you face a lion in the wild, I never have, but suddenly, this is a big deal. See, we, don't, we, we picture this as a small way. God saved Samson's life right here. Samson's dead if the spirit of the Lord does not come on him to give him the strength to kill this lion that is attacking him. Um, I still remember about four or five years ago, my wife and I were in Colorado and we were hiking. We had seen a lot of um, natural beauty. We had seen a lot of bears as we had been hiking about in the West for a couple weeks. And there was one hike. We were in Rocky Mountain National Park. We were up on a ridge and we noticed some people looking down and we saw a bear grazing down, down the trees from us. And it was very cool. It's a pretty big bear. And you're like, it's a safe distance away. And then we noticed a rustling not too far away, maybe 50, 100 feet off to our right. And there's some cute little cubs. And they were like taking pictures and zooming in. And suddenly I'm like, wait, if mom's here, the cubs are here, I don't want to be here. <laughs> right? I want to be somewhere where she does not think. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Let's go. Let's get out of here. I don't need to be on the news for something I don't want to be. Right? Because suddenly when you see a large animal, you're like, okay, this is scary. And so Samson does this amazing feat and he doesn't even tell anyone. Verse 8, after some days, he returned to take her. After, and he turned aside, excuse me, to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out with his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, we clearly see um, that this is not normal, all right? Normally, when there's dead roadkill, it does not mean that there's honey in it. If you're driving down Lakeshore Drive tonight and there's an animal off the side of the road, don't stop to look for honey. Go to Jewel. There's plenty there. It's like $2, all right? But this is a miracle. There's honey in it that Samson goes aside. But if you remember... We talked about last week, Samson's Nazarite vow. If you, don't, if you weren't here, a Nazarite vow meant that they wouldn't eat or drink anything from the vine, would not touch any dead animal, and would not cut their hair. Samson finds himself in one, and then he goes back to a vineyard. You're not supposed to be there, Samson. He kills an animal, and then what does he do? He goes back to it and scoops it out, a second sin, and then he takes what with the, the honey in it and gives it to his parents, a third sin. He defiles, makes them unclean from his own selfishness as well. The second sign of slipping spirituality that we see here in Samson's life, the second sign is that we use God instead of worship God. We use God instead of worship God. See, killing a lion is a really big deal. Right? It would have been his death if he would have not been given God's spirit to overpower it. And everything in Samson's life, this is the beginning of a pattern that we're going to see played out through his life. He has all these victories and what seem to be achievements. And notice what he says to God afterwards. Nothing. There's, there's no recognition. There's no thanks. There's no praise to any deliverance that God gives him in response. Samson's attitude seems to be, well, if God's going to let me do this, then I will. But the, I'm God, my relationship with God is what he can do for me. That's what Samson's relationship with God seemed to be. Now tonight, um, if you're not aware, are the Oscars. I think those are the movie ones, right? The movie ones. 
that the Oscars um, are tonight. And I was reading an article recently that went back and, and researched um, over almost 1,400 acceptance speeches that have been given at the Oscars over, I think, from the 1960s till this article was written, I think, in 2013 or 14. So decades worth of research. And they found it interesting who the winners of these awards think in their acceptance speeches as they're up. They're, they're short, but it's always interesting to notice trends on who people think. They noticed that the largest one was people thanked the Academy, right? You thank the people who voted for you. That, that makes sense. 43% thanked them. The next biggest was parents. 28% of people thanked either mom or dad or both of them. Um, nearly 20% thanked their spouse, their, their husband or their wife. And then they started diving in and they, they took a look at individuals who were thanked publicly um, out of 1,400 speeches at the Oscars, individuals who were thanked for the role they played in their lives. The number one one was Steven Spielberg with 42, Harvey Weinstein at 32, James Cameron with 28, George Lucas with 23, Peter Jackson with 22, and number six on the list with 19 mentions was God. Behind Spielberg and Jackson, and Lucas, way behind mom, dad, husband, wife, or the academy. And we may look at those and be like, oh, those, those Hollywood elites, I knew they were pagans and far from God. You've just confirmed everything that I've ever thought about Hollywood. They're ungrateful, and that's not like me at all. Well, I think that ungratefulness and unthankfulness is not just a Hollywood problem. It's a heart problem for each of us. Um. In our high school group, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we, we looked at Luke 17, where Jesus enters into a village, and there's 10 lepers who greet Jesus outside, and they say, can you heal us? And he says, yes, go present yourself to the high priest, and as they leave, they're, they're cleansed on the way. And then one comes back to him, a Samaritan, not the one you would expect. And he comes back, and he bows down, and Jesus says, where are the other nine? Were there not 10? And only one comes back to say, thank you. See, we are so quick in our lives to ask God for things and so slow to say thank you for things. We tend, and our natural tendency of life is to use God for what we can get from him, how he can help us, and we lack so many of us at thanking God for what he's done in our lives. See, we may think, oh man, a leper, he should go back easy and thank Jesus because he, he changed his life entirely. If a single day goes by where you're a Christian and you don't thank God for your salvation, you've committed something far worse than any of those lepers did. You weren't just sick, you were dead in your sin. And Jesus raised you back to life. See, Jesus did not come and die for your sin just for you to use him and ask God for you to do stuff when you want him to do stuff. He came so that he might rule and be glorified as the greatest thing in all of the world. But in our lives, so often our relationship with God is not worship, it's not glorifying God in everything. It's, hey God, can you do this for me? Hey God, I need this. Just think about the things of a, of a normal time when you pray of a normal time where, where each of us pray. This is not you, this is me too. Hey God, I need, I need some wisdom for this. Would you heal this person? This conflict's going on. Would you, what about this guy? Can you help with this? Can you do this? Oh, thank you, goodbye. Like we throw it on at the end, right? Or we're like, uh, thank you for the food. 
Amen. All right? Like, that's all we've ever thanked God for for weeks at a time is the food, which is good to be thankful for. And it's not that we can't bring our requests to God. That's not at all what I'm saying. But oftentimes, we tend to only be one-sided that all we want to do is ask God for stuff, and our hearts never get to the point where we thank him for everything he's given to us. See, how thankful are you tonight? How thankful are you in your prayers tonight? We need to make sure that we're not using God, but we worship him. And a life that starts to slip away from what God would have is a life that is increasingly less thankful and more asking God, what can you do for me? Not saying, God, what can I do for you? Verse 10 continues, says this. His father went down to the woman. And Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So Samson goes and he throws a feast, a wedding feast. Um, Now, lost in translation as to what this feast would mean, anyone, any Israelite would know that a feast at a Philistine wedding means this, a seven-day drinking party. And I don't mean Mountain Dew. All right, a seven-day drinking party. Now wait, what was the first thing in the Nazareth Valley? Samson, you're not to drink. Samson throws himself a seven-day drinking party. Samson, you're not supposed to do this. We see in verse 11 that, that he's brought 30 companions to be with him. And there's some debate over to what it, what it means. But, but I think the companions here, it says they looked at him and saw him and gave him 30 companions. Now, I don't think they saw Samson and were like, oh, poor chap, he doesn't have anyone at his wedding. We should give him some friends. It's not as if Samson's some awkward antisocial guy who doesn't know how to talk to people. Companions here, in other ways, is translated guards. These are 30 guys who are assigned to Samson. They see Samson and they're like, oh, we need to put some people on him so he doesn't hurt us. We got to get some people around him so that so they protect ourselves in case he gets angry. Because he, there's something different about Samson. So he's assigned these 30 companions, these 30 people to protect the Philistines from Samson. And Samson's in a good mood. It's his wedding week. And he says, verse 12, Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. So he he wagers here 30 changes of clothes, and we may think to ourselves, why have that much in my closet right now? That's not a big deal. Um, This is pre-materialism days, right? You can't just go to Macy's or to Target and buy a whole bunch of outfits to hand off. Most people had maybe two outfits. Lots of them only had one. And so this was a very valuable thing. There's no way that Samson had 30 outfits in exchange just in case he ran in and he couldn't get his riddle, that they figured his riddle out. So he gives them the riddle. Verse 14, the stakes are high. He says this. He said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. They're like, there's 30 of us. Come on, we've got to figure it out. We've got to figure it out. And Samson's over there smiling, right? This is a riddle that is so ridiculously specific to Samson's life that if you have no inside knowledge, you would never get it. 
It'd be like, hey, I got a riddle for you. What? What was I thinking about last Tuesday at 8 p.m.? You'd be like, how am I supposed to? You're like, exactly. You're not supposed to know, and I'm supposed to win. That's Samson's riddle. It's impossible to figure out. But they're getting frustrated. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, his soon-to-be wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish, or other translations say embarrass or humiliate us? Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And so she starts going after Samson to try and save her own self. She's trying to save herself and her parents and her siblings. And so she goes after Samson and she hits Samson's downfall throughout his whole life. It's foreign women. That's what we're going to see. And she goes after him and goes after him. And he says this to her at the end of verse 16. Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? Now, this is not the main application, but this is marriage advice. Just because you don't tell your mom and your dad doesn't mean you shouldn't tell your wife. I don't think that that excuse normally doesn't fly. It certainly doesn't at my household. All right? So he's like, well, I haven't told mom and dad. And she's like, my mom and dad? Come on. You got to tell me. You were soon to be married. Verse 17, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. So everyone's having a jolly old time and there's the bride over there bawling her eyes out day after day after day. Samson, just tell me. Samson, if, if you really love me, if you really love me, Samson, if you really love me. And on the seventh day, he told her because she had pressed him hard. Then, Almost immediately afterwards, she told the riddle to her people. And the time is winding down. The seventh day is nearly ending the celebration. And Samson's thinking to himself, got him. Got him. Get myself 30 pairs of clothes and a wife. This is a good day. This is a winning day. And they come out, verse 19, and they said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They got it. They got the riddle. And Samson says to them, verse 18, he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, I I did some research this week because I was like, you know what? Sometimes the Bible uses really weird metaphors of affection, right? Ever read Song of Solomon? Like, you're like the doves. You're like the goats. And I'm like, I don't tell my wife that. I don't think she would appreciate it if I told her her teeth were like goats, She'd be like, that's gross. What are you talking about, goats? So I was like, maybe in some weird way, it was affectionate to call your soon-to-be wife a cow. It's not. (laughs) It's not. In Hebrew, it's just as insulting as it is in English. He insults her. If you had not plowed with my cow, my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Verse 19. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon, about 20 miles further away, right on the Mediterranean Sea, and struck down 30 men of the town and took the spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And so, again, God uses Samson's sin and anger ultimately for his purpose, right? The Spirit of the Lord comes on him. God is up to something greater than Samson even realized. 
The end of verse 19 says that in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So Samson's angry. He's been insulted. He's been publicly humiliated. And so instead of going back to take his wife at the end of the celebration, he goes straight home, right? He drops off the 30 changes of clothes. Like, I'm done with you guys. I'm so angry. I need to leave. And he goes back to his home. Verse 20, Samson's already angry. Verse 20, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. You think Samson was angry in verse 19? Imagine Samson in chapter 15. It's what you call a biblical cliffhanger, right? It's like a wait for this. He thought he was angry. Wait to see what comes next. The third sign that we see in this story of Samson's life, the third sign of slipping spirituality, that we're walking away from God, is that we live with sin rather than flee from sin. We live with sin rather than flee from sin. We see how over and over again, Samson is already breaking his Nazarite vow that he's taken. He's supposed to be set apart. He's, he's comfortable breaking it. He's comfortable living in sin. He's chasing after foreign women. It's not as if the Philistines are coming into Israel and tempting Samson. Samson's going there. He's going into the Philistines to find himself a wife, and he's comfortable living there, living with the sinful consequences of his actions. But rather than live with sin, as Christians, we need to flee away from sin. See, so often, though, we focus on big sins that we judge, big sins, and so we often don't flee from sin how we should because we don't look at ourselves as we should when it comes to the sin in our own lives. Um, I read a book this week, it was very convicting, by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. Um, And he talks about how we often have refined sin so well in our lives that we can sin and we don't even realize it. He says, we are so creative as human sinful people that we sin so much and we're so creative in how we sin that so many of us are caught in patterns of sin that we don't even sin, that we don't even see it, excuse me. Sins like anxiety and frustration about circumstances, a lack of self-control in so many different areas, impatience, irritability, judgmentalism, being critical of others, envy, resentment. See, so many of us, are living with sin in our lives rather than fleeing from sin. We're living with a life that's constantly consumed by worry. And the Bible says, trust in God. And we're like, no, I'm just going to worry. I'm going to worry. And yes, for lots of us, that means that every single day, it's a battle that you have to place your trust in God again and again because you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to want to worry. And so again, you need to place your trust in God. Maybe it's a lack of self-control. And you're like, man, it's so hard to focus on that. Yes, it's a battle that every day by God's grace and his spirit, you have to fight to leave sin, to not live in it, but to run from sin because that's where our hearts naturally wander. See, to fight against the sin in our lives, we need to recognize that even as we grow in holiness, we still sin and are in need of God's forgiveness. I'm struck by Paul's writing in in 1 Timothy. Um, Near the end of his life, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament outside of the Gospels, and he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Uh, who I 
am the foremost. He doesn't say, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. I was that at one point. Now I'm not. Now I don't have a sin problem. No, at the end of his life, Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners. See, as we grow in grace and in holiness, we don't just always stop sinning, but we start to see even the subtle, the acceptable, the respectable sins that so often are missed by us because we're not even looking for them. See, but the good news is Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you're here and you hear about this fight towards sin, a fleeing from sin rather than a living in sin, it's a battle that if you try and do it on your own, you're never going to get there. You're going to be running and spinning your tires in the mud constantly. And as we talk about leaving sin and, and running from it rather than living in it, we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you can't do it on your own. The only way you can get the Holy Spirit is if you first ask for forgiveness of your sin. See, Jesus, the gospel says that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the punishment for our sin. And then he rose from the dead and he placed his spirit in us so that the spirit works with us to flee the sin in our lives. But this week I realized how much sin is in my life that I don't even think about. Attitudes that I have, the way I talk, what I say. My friends, they're, they're, our hearts are so sinful. We are so creative at sinning and not even realizing it. So where in your life are you struggling with sin? I, I would add, tell you tonight that it's not good enough just to ask yourself that, but, but I would urge you to ask God to search your heart. Ask God to show the spirits, the attitudes, the desires of your heart that you haven't even consciously thought of, but that aren't how he would have it, that aren't pleasing to him. And as God brings those desires up, that you would confess them. Because when it comes to faith, if we're not fighting forward, if we're not working with God's spirit, doing all we can to move forward, it just means that like Samson was in his life, we're slipping backwards, deeper into life of sin. God, we confess that we are so sinful, so undeserving of your grace, of your mercy, of your love. But God, we thank you that you came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God, may you convict our hearts anew tonight of our need for your grace. God, we thank you for the love of Jesus. Grace beyond what we could ever understand. God, that you are indeed stronger than sin, stronger than death. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.